Grab your Bibles, if you will, and open them with me to the book of Exodus. Now, while you're finding that, I've got to tell you just a little bit of quick something. Uh, you can turn to Exodus 34. But uh, what I have for you this morning is, a, is an odd-shaped Father's Day gift. It's odd-shaped in that it's a sermon. That's pretty odd, and it's pretty odd-shaped. <laughs> but here's what it is. Uh, I was with your high school students this week uh, in Gulf Shores. And I spoke four times at night. And um, I, I want to, part of the Father's Day gift is to tell you, your kids were wonderful. They were, there was, I know they're probably into things that we wish they weren't into, but with us in this week, they're a delight to be with. Just a delight. Not, not a problem one. Um, so I, I put together four sermons, uh, kind of a theme, starting in Exodus 32, going through 34. And um, uh, I thought it might be good that you hear a little bit of what I said to your high school students. Now, the other three, I have to tell you, I, 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 I think eventually I'm going to preach the whole four-part series here, perhaps in the fall, and I can... I can hear people groaning even now, going, oh, no, i got to hear that again. And, and I, I'm preaching, or I want to preach them, not because they were such excellent sermons. I want to preach them because the theme was excellent, guys. Um, the theme had to do with mediation, and we'll talk about that a whole lot. But um, I, I think the theme is worth bringing it to the entire body instead of just our, our high school youth. So uh, I may be doing that pretty soon. Um, the, the third message that I, I I'm going to preach to you the fourth one, but the third one that uh, I preached on, uh, this would have been uh, Wednesday night, came out of chapter 33. And there's something in, excuse me, it was out, out of chapter 34. And, and there's something in chapter 34 that is altogether unique to the Bible. There's not another passage like this in the entire Bible, Old Testament, New Testament. It's really contained in verses uh, 6 and 7 of 34, where um, up in chapter 33, Moses in verse 18 says, God, would you show me your glory? And so God replies and says, okay, I will. And he begins to explain himself. In verses 6 and 7, if you'll look at 34, 6 and 7. I mean, this is, this is not Moses' opinion. It's not Moses' perception. It's not Paul's opinion. It's not my opinion. It is God saying to Israel, you want to know what I'm like? Here it is. This is the lengthiest passage in the Bible of self-disclosure to be found anywhere in the Bible where God says, I will tell you what I'm like. And he does that in verses 6 and 7. And, and uh, those terms in there are familiar terms to us. There's, there's terms like mercy and grace and slow to anger and, and steadfast and loving kindness. And, and even a, uh, but I will by no means clear the guilty. That's all pretty familiar territory for us. We've heard those terms. We've loved those terms. Jimmy just sang about those terms. We know those terms. Now, you might have been raised in an, in an environment where those terms were taught in a way that they were out of balance. You know, there was too much mercy and not enough justice, or too much justice and not enough mercy. 
I, I don't know that. But we know these terms. These are familiar terms that are found in 34, 6, and 7. But my subject today and my subject Thursday night with your high school students is on a, um, a particular topic that is not as well known. We know this over in 33, 6, and 7, 34, 6, and 7. But what I'm about to tell you, I'm not sure you're as familiar with as that other. And quite frankly, when we find out about it, it's a tad disconcerting. It's not, I mean, it's just kind of confusing if you've never heard this. So I want to read it to you. I'm in chapter 34, and I want to read you, I'm going to read you through 16, 10 through 16. And he said, that is, God is speaking. And he said, behold, I am making a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the works of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it shall tear down their, let you shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their Asherim. Here's what I want you to focus on, guys, which is a whole lot less known. For you shall worship no other God. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of, of his sacrifice, and you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God, it stands forever. And what I just read, read you out of the word of God that stands forever is a bit disconcerting. This is the last piece of information, the last piece of self-disclosure that God gives to Israel in, in this section. There's other places where he'll give you a snapshot here and a, snap, a piece there. But in terms of this mini theology that he gives you in chapter 34, this is the last piece of it. Uh, and it comes, in my mind, as, as almost the cherry on the top. And I say it's the cherry on the top for these two reasons. First of all, it's the last piece. He's told all these things about being gracious and merciful and steadfast and, and not, uh, you know, um, uh, clearing the guilty and all that. Then, about eight verses later, he comes and says, and by the way, one more thing that I'd like you to know. My name is Jealous, and I am a jealous God. So it comes as the last thing. The other reason I'm saying it's the cherry on the top is because it's a name. Guys, many of you know that, that God chooses names to reveal himself. That's how he does it in the Old Testament. He wants to tell you about himself, and so he gives himself a name. You remember that name, Yahweh? Oh, what a significant... That's the one that he gave to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 3. I mean, that's a significant name. My goodness, it's, it, it means so much. It has so much information packed into it. It's a name, but it's a name by which God discloses and reveals the nature of his being. 
Here's another one. This is not simply an attribute. For instance, mercy is an attribute. It's a wonderful attribute. And I by no means want to minimize its significance and its importance. But it's an attribute. This is a name. Look, look, he says in, in verse 14, he says, For you shall worship no other God for the Lord, whose name is Jealous. He's a jealous God. You know, I, I think this whole subject of jealousy comes up now because of the whole golden calf incident, which is in chapter 32, which is where I started my series last Monday night in 32. You remember when Moses is up getting the Ten Commandments and the people just break out into a big old orgy and, and uh, they build this golden calf and all that. Well, then God... Re- reacts to that. Let me, let me, let me just read you what his reaction looked like. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. Now, how does that grab you? <laughs> what do you think about that? I mean, what comes to mind when when, when I read you, get out of my way, Moses. I'm going to consume all of them in my anger and wrath. What, 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 how does that strike you? What do you think about that? Oh, well, that's a, that's, a, that's a bit unbecoming. <laughs> it's, um, it's a tad um, offensive. If nothing else, it's certainly confusing. I mean, my goodness, Jimmy, uh, isn't, isn't the book of Proverbs uh, the book that tells us all that bad stuff about jealousy like this? Um, wrath is cruel. Anger is overwhelming. But who can stand before jealousy? And um, how about this one? Um, uh, yes. Hold on here. Um, for jealousy makes a man furious and he will not spare when he takes revenge. Isn't it? Doesn't the book of Proverbs tell us that jealousy is just, mm, you know, not, not good. I mean, um, how can jealousy be bad for me and good for God? Is, is all human jealousy necessarily bad? Well, apparently not. Because there are two interesting stories in the Old Testament, ladies and gentlemen, that, that depict human jealousy as downright laudable. One of them is in Numbers chapter 5. Do you remember that one? It's called the, the Law of Jealousy. Where if the husband suspected his wife was out messing around, he could take her over to the priest. And the priest would whip up this concoction of stuff with dirt off the temple floor and and mix it in some water and tell her to drink it. If she was guilty, her leg would rot off. Remember that one? That's the law of jealousy, Numbers chapter 5. There's another story about Phineas. And both of those stories would be helpful as we try to figure out this, this characteristic, this... This name of God being jealous, but we don't have time to look at them both. 
Well, we are going to take the time to look at one of these stories that talk about jealousy in a favorable light. Go with me, if you will, to Numbers chapter 25. It's the story of Phineas. Now, guys, i got to read you 13 more verses. I shouldn't apologize for that, but I know people hate to be read to. I understand that. I hate to be read to. But this is a story that, if you'll listen to it, I mean, it's not a boring story at all. I mean, it's a, it's a rough and ready story. And if you'll listen to it, I think it'll capture you. I'm in Numbers chapter 25, verse 1. I'm going to read 13 verses, and I'm going to try to read it in a way that will make it interesting to you. Here we go. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifice of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, Take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman, through her belly. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. And the Lord said to Moses, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel in that... He was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, Behold, I give to him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and to his descendants after him the the covenant of perpetual priesthood. Because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. Now, guys, that's a strange story. And um, it presents some real moral difficulties, moral dilemmas for those of us who love this book. Let me explain. Did not Phineas just violate the Sixth Commandment? The Sixth Commandment is, thou shalt do no murder. (laughs) Did he not just violate that? Well, uh, something's going on here, gang, because first, he is never once rebuked for what he did. Secondly, in verse 11, he is praised. And third, in verse 13, he is rewarded. Now, why? Well, actually, what Phineas does is quite a beautiful thing, ladies and gentlemen. I would say it's almost as beautiful is what God did in Exodus 32, the golden calf incident. Almost. 
So let me see if I can explain that, why I'm telling you it's beautiful. And hopefully by my so doing, you'll understand something of the beauty of God being jealous. About five or six points that you need to know about the story about Phineas. Number one, the sin in this Phineas story is not sex. The sin is idolatry. He says that in verse 2. These invited the people to the sacrifice of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked itself with Baal of Peor. The, the sin before you, ladies and gentlemen, is not a sexual one. It is an idolatrous one. They have given away affections to Baal of Peor that belonged to God and God only. And they were seduced. I didn't read this verse, but in verse 18, it talks about the wiles that you have been beguiled in verse 18. The people of Israel were seduced. They were beguiled via schemes and wiles and sex was simply the seducer. It was the thing used to woo these people's hearts away from God. You know, guys, um, we make a whole lot of, of sexual sin in the Christian church. In fact, you know, when, you're, when you spend a week with a bunch of high schoolers, man, sex seems to come up all the time. We make a whole lot about sexual sin in, Christian, in the Christian church. And very frankly, I'm afraid we make too much about it. Because it's not the only seductress. It's one. And for that particular age group, it's a biggie, yes. But, you know, we're not in that age group, are we? The most of us. And there are other seductresses out there, aren't there? Things like career. Maybe I can prove my worth via uh, some kind of corporate success. Then people will notice me. Uh, then I'll have a sense of worth and dignity and value as I become successful in the workplace. Or maybe marriage. Guys, when I did, when I did singles, if I had one single woman say to me, I had two dozen say to me, I just want to be married. If I could only be married, then, then I'd really be happy. Or Gracie Van's particular idolatrous sin, kids. Kids. Your kids where we try to get all of our needs met through our kids. Oh, my kid is a cheerleader, and he's a baseball player, and <laughs> my whole life revolves around them. <laughs> How about that? Gang, have you heard about helicopter parents? It was in USA Today. I have the articles on my desk. I meant to bring it up, forgot it. Helicopter parents is describing a group of parents who is, is taking their parenting skills all the way, all the way into the recruiting offices. They are going to recruiting visits with their college graduate children. They kind of hover over their kids like a helicopter. We are turning our kids into absolute idols. And I watch our families do it. You will sacrifice anything. And I mean anything. For your kids, 
Or thinness is another one. Oh, if I could just be thin, you know, then, then I mean, people will really notice me. And, you know, if I'm, if I'm really shapely and so I've got to be thin. Or, or money. It's another seductress. The power and the control that comes along with it. Gang, none of those things, career, marriage, family, thinness, none of those things are bad. They're just, they just become bad when we turn them into ultimate things. That is, when we take a good thing and turn it into an ultimate thing, it becomes a bad thing. It's what Augustine called inordinate loves. We take good things and we turn them into ultimate things and they thus become bad things. And when we turn them into those ultimate things, it's where those ultimate things now take us that gets to be idolatrous. Because they take us to a place where we begin to think that meaning and purpose and worth and value can be found. In something other than the living Christ. Gang, the essence, listen to me, the essence of sin is thinking that my life can have meaning with something other than Jesus Christ at the center of it. I begin to build my identity on something other than Christ. And you know what the Bible calls that, ladies and gentlemen? The Bible calls it idolatry. So the sin in the story of Phineas is the sin of idolatry. It's not sex. Sex is just one of the among thousands of things. That can steal your heart and cause you to give your affections to things other than Jesus Christ. The second thing that you need to see about the story is in verse 3b. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. God watches all this going on and he springs into action. Now guys, here's where you got to listen. I've said this to you before. But it's imperative if we're ever going to understand God's jealousy. You've got to understand this. Any relationship, any relationship that is intended to be an exclusive relationship, in that relationship, jealousy is not only permitted, it is demanded. Any relationship that is designed to be an exclusive one, jealousy is not only permitted, it is demanded. Guys, there's only two such relationships. The first relationship is a husband and a wife. You know, Susie has a right to expect and demand all of my affections and they're not to be drained away to any other woman. So jealousy is permitted and demanded in that husband-wife relationship. It is also permitted and demanded in a relationship that exists between me and my God. You know what? Baal of Peor is not supposed to get any of my affections. And when I drain away affections that are rightfully God's, and I give them to another God. Yahweh springs into action. 
You know, guys, I like to say it like this. You show me a man who can find his wife in the arms of another man and not get jealous. And I will show you a man who doesn't love his wife. Gang, the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is indifference. When a husband looks at his wife and says, I don't give a, I don't give a hoot what she does. You know, guys, you may think I'm nuttier than a fruitcake, but I've been in the ministry now some 33 years. And I, not so long ago, had a husband tell me in a, in a way where he was defending his sacrificial lifestyle before his family, where he encouraged his wife to go have an affair with another man. You see how sacrificial I am, Dr. Young? I even told my wife. And I looked across my desk and I said, son, You can call that normalcy. You see, when a man grows indifferent, then he doesn't care what she does. And that's when you don't love. Now, you got to keep that in mind. Here's the third thing you need to see about the story in verses 4 and 5. God issues a command that those who worship the other God who has yoked themselves to Baal of Peor, they must die. Which is perfectly consistent with everything that he has said in the first commandment. That's the third thing. Here's the fourth thing, and it unfolds in verse 6. While all this is going on, there is a couple, and they're named later on. Their name is Zimri and Cosby. Cosby is the woman. She's a Midianite woman. Um, while all this is going on, Zimri, a Jewish man, takes a Midianite woman and he parades her in front of everybody. It says right in front of Moses and everybody. <laughs> and takes her into his bedroom. And Phineas sees that. And he springs into an action of his own. He grabs a spear. He goes into that bedroom. And ladies and gentlemen, if my imagination is not too filthy, with one stroke, he got them both. I can figure out what was going on. One stroke right through her belly. Says the text. Now, look at the text, ladies and gentlemen. Never, um, uh, man of Israel and the woman through her belly. This is the last part of eight. Thus, in response to, on the heels of, as a result of, what Phineas did, the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. In conjunction with Phineas' act, the plague is stopped. But as we're told in verse 9, not before 24,000 people have died. 
Now, guys, keep, stay with me. This is number five, the fifth thing that you should know about this story, and it unfolds in verses 10 through 13. Verse 10 is simply saying, the Lord said to Moses. And then what you get in verses 11 through 13 is God's assessment of Phineas's actions. I want you to notice what God says about Phineas in verse 11. He has turned back my wrath. Because he was jealous with my jealousy. What Phineas did limits, brings a stop to, a halt to, the ongoing display of the wrath of God. After Phineas came forward to deal violently with sin, God says, in terms of the plague, that's enough. Stay with me. And only 24,000 people died. To avert a national extermination. Look at verse 11. So that I did not consume the people of Israel. To avert a national extermination, someone had to be jealous with my jealousy. And his name was Phineas. Guys, think with me for a quick minute. In the, in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, it's early on, it's in John chapter 2. Jesus goes into the temple and he sees what's going on and he just goes bonkers. He turns over tables, he makes, he makes a, a, a whip himself. He made it, the text says. He makes the whip and begins to drive people out of the temple. And then John says, and then we remembered the zeal of my father's house would consume him. Here we go. In Hebrew, the word for zeal and the word for jealousy is the same word. So you know what Jesus was doing in the temple? He was being jealous with God's jealousy. Christ was jealous with God's jealousy, and so was Phineas. And my dear brother and sister in Christ, that's the point of this story in Numbers 25. Verse 13, if you look at verse 13, God says in 13, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement. He made atonement. For the people of Israel. Had it not been for Phineas, all of Israel would have died. But because there was one man who hated sin, and there was one man who was a man of one love, because he stepped in and dealt violently with sin, A national extermination is avoided. And that man's name was Phineas. Again, what I'm saying to you is that Phineas, in this event, is a type of Christ. 
Judgment falls. But it doesn't fall on everybody. Because of Phineas. They were all guilty. But some of Israel receives mercy because one man dealt violently with sin. His name is Phineas. Just like 3,000 years later, another man would stand in the middle of a God who has an inflexible hatred towards sin. And because he would deal violently with sin, some would receive not wrath, but mercy. And his name was Jesus Christ. You see, the difference between Christ and Phineas is that Phineas's taking away sin didn't cost him his life. It did cost Christ his life. In fact, later on when Christ died, he would be dying for Phineas. At least one of the persons he'd be dying for. Christ bore the penalty on himself. Phineas didn't. It's Christ who is supremely the man of one love. So what I'm saying in all this, guys, is what you're watching in Exodus 32, after the golden calf, and then in Numbers 25, with the story of Phineas, and what you're watching at Calvary, is God taking extraordinary measures to deal with sin so that... So that he won't lose his bride. God is determined to do whatever it takes to remove what separates him from his people. So sin must be punished. And it was. In Christ. Like any unfaithful wife, Israel has been caught in her husband's bed with another lover. And just like any husband who loves his wife, God watches in horror as his bride goes whoring after another God. And then he explodes. In jealous love, the jealousy of a betrayed spouse who treasures and loves his bride. What is there about that that you don't like? What is there about that that's not beautiful to us? Would you have him love you less? Would you have him be indifferent toward, I don't give a hoot what those people do. (laughs) 
Just let them go. Just let them go spend their lives making a fortune only to discover that it won't meet their needs. <laughs> I don't care what they do. <laughs> Is that what you want? Do you want a God who doesn't care that we give our hearts to things that won't satisfy? My dear brother and sister in Christ, much of what we are experiencing in terms of the chastening hand of God right now, that is, you're under chastening, are you? Much of what we're experiencing in terms of the chastening rod of God in our own lives is the Heavenly Father in jealous love putting His finger right on our idols and reminding us that thing won't satisfy you. And some of you young parents are going to grow up one day and you're going to discover, I built my life around an identity that has turned on me. And so God in His jealous love reminds us that nothing will satisfy but Him. He jealously protects that which He loves. That which is supremely precious to Him. And He refuses to share His bride. And He cares for her with a love that is breathtaking in its intensity. It's like a bear who who sees her cubs in danger. It's ferocious. And its ferocity is seen at the cross. A violent act, that is at Calvary, a violent act where sin is punished. And where atonement is made. And where the plague is halted. My friends, the Heavenly Father gained His bride at a very high price. And He will not sit idly by as His people give their affections to things that will not and cannot satisfy their hearts. Tell me, would you have Him love you less He will not. He cannot. He loves His people with a jealous love. Our Father, I pray that You will show Your people the beauty of Your love for them that they might never again wonder about the extremities to which you will go
to love your bride. And I pray that you will work within us the response of a loved wife who responds in such joy and such self-giving and such delight. Might what you see coming from this, your people, is the joy of a bride who is loved. We pray, of course, in Jesus' name.